0: Hello, everyone. Before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr. Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is, he's an absolute and total enthusiast. And that to me is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So, Diane Perkis of the People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done the People's History approach to food. There's one just out on medieval food, and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal potcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr Neil Buttery. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Anglo-Saxon England, Series 1, Episode 25, or Episode 15 under the old money. Ethelred, Forkbeard, and Misery. This is your regular reminder that the content of this episode is exactly the same as the corresponding episode in the History of England, and that I have restored this here merely for the sake of convenience, completeness, and ease into the Anglo-Saxon England feed. Also, you will notice shortly a change in the quality of recording since the original was recorded over a decade ago, and the world span just a little bit slower back then.
1: Anyway, last week we left Ethelred in 1002, possibly feeling as though things might just be looking up. How wrong he was. Whatever Svein Forkbeard's plans might have been after he left England, with £24,000 in his pocket, by the time he'd heard of the St Bryce massacre and the death of his sister, he was already planning his next move. So in 1003, the Danes were back, and England was again under the cosh. But Swain was probably again not yet in the position to consider conquering England rather than raiding it. He'd recently managed to outmanoeuvre Olaf Tryggvason and take control of Norway back through the hands of Norwegian Jarls that he could trust. But his position was not yet secure enough. It was the southwest again that the Danes descended on, and this time they captured Exeter. The city was owned by Queen Emma, and she had given control of the city to one of her people, Hugh. Hugh turned out to be either incompetent or worse, treacherous, and the Danes sacked the town and then started to ravage the surrounding countryside. At this point, our old friend Alfric re enters the story. You'll no doubt remember him from last week, the alderman who betrayed the English fleet in 992 and whose son had suffered as a result. In 1003, he reappears, leading an army from the Hampshire and Wiltshire Ferds, ready to take on the Danes. I have no idea, by the way, how Alfric managed to get himself back on the English side, but the Chronicles seem to make it quite clear that this is the same guy. But anyway, when the armies were close, Alfric lost his nerve, and his army simply melted away, leaving the Danes free to ravage Wessex as far as Salisbury before returning to their ships. The following year, in 1004, the Danes descended on East Anglia, and sacked Norwich and Thetford. Here, at last, they met an adversary worth the name, in Ulfkell the Valiant, an East Anglian thane, but not an alderman. The alderman himself appears to have been involved in negotiations with the Danes, while Ulfkell had decided that fighting was the better option. And it's worth reflecting that the English should have been in a better position for a war of attrition. Even if the Danes won every battle, if the English could just make them bleed, make them lose enough men, the Danes would find those men much more difficult to replace, and they'd have to leave. Ulfgård had a smaller army than the Danes, but had clearly appreciated this simple fact. So he ordered the local men to burn the undefended ships, and he marched to attack the Danes. The result was a bloody encounter in which many Danish leaders and men were killed, and they had to run for those ships. If Ulfkel's advice had been taken and the ships burnt, then the Danes might have had a real disaster on their hands. Everyone had more important things on their mind in 1005. Crops failed and famine stalked the land. So the Danes went home, unable to support their army by living off the land. If this war were a football match, then by the time we get to 1006, the Danes were so far ahead in confidence and ability that they quite frankly start showboating while the opposition starts arguing amongst itself and blaming each other. On the Danish side, they occupied Sandwich on the southeast coast. The feeling of despair and helplessness bleeds out of the Anglo-Saxon chronicle. Then the king called up all the people from Mercia and Wessex, and they stayed out all the autumn on military service against the force. But it availed no more than it ever had. Basically, the Danes again displayed their superior mobility and skipped around the English army. They then set off on a raid in the depth of winter through Hampshire and Berkshire and fetched up at Cookhamsley Knob, then in Berkshire, now in Oxfordshire. Cookhamsley Knob is the place on the ancient Ridgeway path where the Shire court used to meet. It's also reputed to be where. By the way, our early West Saxon king Quichelm was killed by Edwin of Northumbria in 636 in episode 2 or 3. Anyway, the English had a prophecy at the time which said that if the Danes went to Cookhamsley Knob, they would never again reach the sea. So basically, the Danes went straight there, stood on the hill, and stuck out their tongues at the whole English race and dared them to make the prophecy fact. No-one took them up on the offer, so the Danes walked back down the ridgeway to Avebury, and there the Wiltshire ferd stood, and got the by now traditional and totally expected kicking from the Danes. The Danes then walked past the Anglo-Saxon capital at Winchester in complete confidence and, as the Anglo-Saxon chronicle records, proud and unafraid, and so back to sea. Athelred called a meeting of his senior men and councillors in Shropshire over Christmas for a serious discussion about what to do. They sat with furrowed brow and put on their serious thinking caps and came up with a great idea that they should maybe pay the Danes off. Great idea, guys. Well done. So in early 1007, tribute was duly paid over to the Danes, the stunning sum of £36,000. I wanted to try and find out how much £36,000 would be worth in today's money. So I found this very neat little website, which allowed you to calculate the difference of purchasing power of a UK pound in 1264 and 2008. So apropos of nothing, with absolutely no historical reality, apparently 36,000 pounds in 1264, quite some time after this, of course, would be worth about 426 million quid. So that's a pretty hefty ransom. Anyway, the money had the desired effect, and the Danes did leave. They went home to prepare for their next campaign, and would return two years later for the campaign that would in effect break the back of English resistance. On the English side in 1006, we have the finger-pointing and internal squabbling of the losing side in a football match. Elphelm, the alderman of southern Northumbria, and father of Æthelred's first wife, fell out of favour with Æthelred. He was killed, quite probably on the king's orders, and his two sons were blinded. We don't know why, but can only guess that it was felt that his loyalty was suspect, and the whole thing speaks of suspicion and distrust spreading round the English court. There also appears to have been a man called Wolfgar who suffered the same fate, but no more is known about that one. On a more positive note, in Alfhame's place a man called Eutred the Bold, the High Reeve of Bamborough, was appointed to be Alderman of all Northumbria, Rather than having one for the south and one for the north of Northumbria, Útred had attracted Ethelred's attention that same year by defeating Malcolm the Second of Scotland outside the walls of Durham. The idea was clearly to create larger, more powerful, and coherent kingdoms, better able to raise a more effective response to the Danish raids. In one thousand and seven, we see the same approach taken in Mercia. With a man called Edric Striona being appointed to be the alderman of all Mercia, and on the face of it, this does seem like a sensible approach to take. But once again, it's about who Ethelred chooses that makes the whole thing fall to pieces. I have to say, choosing someone called Eutred the Bold, who's already given the Scots a whipping, seems like a good idea, so we're okay with that one. But this Edric guy is going to prove a real stinker. I was really impressed to find out that there'd been a survey of the top most rubbish Englishmen, which was a survey where people voted. Top, i.e. the worst, was Jack the Ripper, which seems fair enough, I suppose. But Edric Stroner was voted second worst. Now that's really something, because I don't know about you, but until I started doing this podcast, I had absolutely no idea of who Edric Stroner was. I might have been told at the age of 11 or something, but as a memory, that was long gone. We have to be a bit careful, as ever, about Edric. Frank Stenton, the historian in whose company I have spent more time than with my entire family over the last four months, points out that Edric became the villain that we can blame for everything that goes wrong. So, for example, he's accused of killing Alderman Alfhelm, but the whole story looks made up. His infamy comes down to the fact that he's the leading proponent of appeasement, and the payment of huge tribute to the Danes, and presumably some of that cash sticks to his fingers. He's accused of carrying out Æthelred's dirty work, but mainly it's his later betrayal, in 1015, of Æthelred and then Edmund Ironside, for which he's been most condemned. It's also been pointed out that Edric was in a constantly ambiguous position, being very often the go-between with the Danes, and Mr Æthelred's Mr Fixit. But all in all, Edric's got to be counted as one of the bad guys, Certainly history has not been kind to him, giving him the subricade strona, or the grasper. He ended up with his head in a spike, which the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describes as being rightly done. William of Malmesbury described him as the refuse of mankind and a reproach unto the English, which kind of makes William's view clear on the matter, I think. We don't know quite where Edric comes from, though there's a lot of debate. Florence of Worcester describes him of low birth at a time when high birth was considered a good thing, and we can probably dismiss this as an insult. There's a debate linking him to a Mercian orderman, but it's all conjecture. But it's most likely he was not a complete unknown when he was appointed by Ethelred. In the same year, Edric married Ethelred's daughter Edgith, so he really is in the king's good books, and a man to watch. In this final breathing space, Ethelred did also make further preparations, and went back again to what looks like a reasonable strategy. Okay, we can't beat them on land, so let's get them out at sea. Edgar's fleet had by now clearly gone the same way as the army, whether from decay or the naval disasters we saw last week. So Ethelred put in place a structured process whereby the whole country would contribute towards the production of a grand fleet. This is impressive stuff, especially for its time, Every group of three hundred and ten hides would produce the money for one warship. Every eight hides would provide a helmet and a male shirt. It's another example of the administrative efficiency and organization of the English state, whatever the quality of its leader or fighting force. And it happened too. By one thousand and nine, the ships were ready and were assembled off the southeast coast at Sandwich. And then again, the whole thing descended into farce. Edric Stryanus' brother, Bitric accused the South Saxon thane, Wulfnoth, of treachery, and had him banished. Wulfnoth stole twenty ships, and wreaked his revenge, raiding and pillaging along the coast. Finally, Bitric took eighty ships, and set off after him, only to be beached in a storm, and for Wulfnoth to then burn the ships. Ethelred and his aldermen threw up their hands in despair, and all went home, and so all that effort came to naught. It must have been completely demoralising and then the Danish fleet arrived in August. In quality and numbers, the army of 1009 was probably the largest and most formidable yet assembled in England. Its leaders included men of reputation everywhere in the Viking world. The army was also joined by the specialised warriors from Jomsburg, and a bit of explanation is needed here. The Jomsburg Vikings were a staunchly pagan elite band of warriors, who would sell their services to any employer, They're sometimes seen working for Christian kings, for example. There's some doubt about whether the Jomsberg Vikings are actually true or existed purely in the world of sagas, but there does seem to be enough corroboration between these sagas and some evidence from runestones to believe they actually did exist. To become a Jomsberg Viking, then, warriors had to pass a trial, usually a ritual duel against an existing Jomsberg Viking. Once in, the Viking had to adhere to a strict code of conduct or be expelled. From what I can see, whatever their fighting qualities, the Yomsburg Vikings seem to be in a pretty treacherous lot, much given to switching sides, and also involved in an awfully large number of defeats. However, they would have been dear to Svein, since one of their treacherous switchings put an end to Olaf Tryggvason and his claims to be king of Norway. Jomsburg was probably located somewhere on the southern Baltic coast, and was set up by Bluetooth sometime in the 940s. Their community ended in 1043, when Magnus I of Norway sacked Jomsburg and put the entire lot to death. The army of 1009 came in two companies, one led by Thorkel the Tall and the other by his brother Heming and a chief called Eilaf. Thorkell was a Joms Viking and the son of a Viking lord, and Eilaf was connected to Swain and the Danish royal family. For the first six months the army did little more than had become traditional. They extracted gifts from Canterbury of £3,000 and burned and pillaged their way through Sussex, Hampshire and Berkshire. They attacked, but yet again failed to take London, but did manage to take and burn Oxford. In the spring of 1010 the army returned to East Anglia. They stormed Ipswich and then came up against Ulfkell the Valiant again, who had given them so much trouble in 1004. Ulfkell had the thirds of East Anglia and Cambridgeshire, and the Danes attacked him near Thetford. Sadly, the result was not long in doubt, as the leader of the East Anglians, Thercatul Mareshead, fled early with his men, which could possibly be yet another example of lukewarm Anglo-Danes. Ulfkell and the men of Cambridge fought on, but in the end they too broke and fled. Their defeat opened up another season of pillage for the Danes, which they carried out all over the east and south from Cambridge to Sussex. By the end of the year, the Danes had ransacked 15 counties in 1009 and 1010, and the English were on their knees. The chronicler bewails the ineffectiveness or cowardice of his leadership and reflects how now government was beginning to break down under the pressure and become a matter of simple survival. He wrote, When the force was in the east, the troops were kept west, and when they were in the south, then our troops were in the north. Then the councillors were all summoned, and it was discussed how this land should be defended, but whatever was counselled then did not last longer than a month. There was no head man who could gather the troops, but each fled as best he might. Furthermore, no shire would help the other next to it. The English sued for peace, and offered to pay tribute in 1011. The Danes accepted, but while they were waiting, Thorkell and his Danes went to Kent for a bit of pillaging. Finally, Canterbury was betrayed to them by an archdeacon called Olmere, and the sack of Canterbury began. A chronicler records that the Danes held back one-tenth of the inhabitants and slaughtered the rest. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Elhir, was taken captive and held for seven months. Among all this death and destruction, plague hit the Danish army, with as many as 2,000 dying, probably from dysentery. Edric Streona came to London and brought the English tribute of an unimaginable £48,000. The tribute had taken a while to collect from a country that was now sucked dry of money. The Danes demanded an extra payment for the Archbishop, but Elhir refused, so the men began to pelt him with bones and cattle heads. This is no doubt a very unpleasant way to die, but it's also a slightly odd route for the Vikings to take, and something slightly pythonesque about it. But at this point, Thorkel intervenes, and he tried to get the Danes to stop, but his men would not listen to him, and Elhir was beaten to death. Thorkel had been defied by his men, and this meant that he could not be sure of their loyalty any more, so at the end of the year he and his loyalists of about forty five ships changed sides and swore fealty to Ethelred. It was not a good decision. With Spain's campaign of ten thirteen, we finally come to the end game. Spain knew that the campaign of one thousand and nine to ten twelve had effectively finished England and destroyed its morale. As that chronicler's entry makes clear, the country's leaders now had no confidence, and had no idea of what strategies to adopt and were beginning to lose the ability to think and work together. Spain now knew he could make himself King of England. Svein also expected that the Anglo-Danes would join him if he raised his standards. Ethelred had after all shown himself incapable of defending his people, and furthermore he had ordered the murder of who knows how many Anglo-Danes in 1002. Svein would have also seen signs of reluctance to fight in the East Anglian thirds. So in 1013 Svein headed north. He sailed up the Trent, headed for the Danelaw, and set up his base at Gainsborough in the borough of Lindsey. His instincts had been absolutely right. The leading men of Northumbria, Lindsay and the five boroughs all came to make their peace and swear fealty to him, including Eutred, the high Reeve of Bamborough. Svein kept tight control of his men and no looting was allowed until he crossed Watling Street into English Mercia. But the English power to resist was now gone and towns like Oxford and Winchester surrendered as soon as he appeared before their walls. His only setback came again at the walls of London where Ethelred and Thurka were holed up, and this time his attack failed. I doubt Svein was worried. He went west to Wallingford and Bath and continued to receive the submissions of the western thanes, and by this time the chronicle records that the whole nation regarded him as king in all respects. England's new king, Svein, showed what he was about by letting his men continue to ravage his new kingdom, and as the chronicler wrote, nothing went right for the nation, north or south. By the way, the chronicler who writes the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle about these years is a superb writer, pretty much unputdownable, and I can really heartily recommend it. Now not even London saw any hope, and they submitted to Svein. Ethelred fled in Thorkel's ships to the Isle of Wight, and thence to his wife's brother Richard in Normandy. Svein also retired to his base in Gainsborough, and issued his only act as King of England, which, surprise, surprise, was a tax. However, to everyone's surprise and Ethelred's delight, Svein then died. A lovely little footnote, by the way, is that anyone who'd paid Svein's tax got their money back. That's good, isn't it, amongst all this death, destruction and chaos. In a way, it's almost a shame for England that Svein died at this point. Whatever pain he'd inflicted on England, all his death achieved for them was another two years of war with the same end result. it been very interesting for me, writing and learning about all of this. In a sense, it's quite difficult to keep the interest up, because the years between 980 and 1014 are an absolutely relentless and sometimes monotonous record of endless destruction. Getting to the end of it is actually quite a relief, and you wonder what condition England must have been in. Surely it must have been a desert after all this. And yet the Danes kept coming back for more to the same shires and the same areas. One point to remember is that the number of boroughs that get mentioned as being captured are pretty far and few between. So it's quite possible that the English were able to flee to the safety of the boroughs and keep their movable goods. But after all these years of chaos, by any measure, Ethelred has surely lost his right to rule. Modern historians have, to a degree, tried to rehabilitate Ethelred, So we should look at some of the things in his favour. The efficiency of his administration has been pointed out. So, for example, it's during his reign that we see the development of a chancery, i.e. a government body specifically designed to create charters and documents. Ironically, England at this time is also experiencing something of a golden age of culture, from writers such as Wolfstan and Alfred, and church building. Ethelred issued a comprehensive law code during this reign, which dealt with both Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Danish territories. So the guy wasn't all bad. The obvious question is why Æthelred failed where Alfred succeeded. One thing to remember in Æthelred's defence is that while there were many similarities between the 9th century and the second period of Viking invasion, there were also many differences. Æthelred had to face Danish armies that had developed still further from Alfred's time, a professional trained army, not just collections of pirates. And so we see that the English forces simply had no answer to the Danes on the battlefield, and time and time again they were beaten. There's also one Danish leadership, rather than the different, uncoordinated bands of marauders. The enemy was concentrated, and much more coordinated than in Alfred's time. And they were well led. Svein Falkbeard proved to be a formidable military commander. That's all very well, but let's remember that we've been talking about a period of 30 years, and with plenty of time surely to develop different responses, and Ethelred simply never manages to do so effectively. The main charge against Ethelred is probably his complete failure to create any sense of collective response. His reign is marked by internecine squabbling between his great men, and a complete failure of leadership. When Alfred faced disaster, he was able to find solutions and tactics that worked and led men to make them work. Ethelred never achieved that. One more thing I think is significant is that in Alfred's time, there were four Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. This has traditionally been advanced as a reason for the weakness of the ninth century Anglo-Saxon state, but I wonder if it wasn't an advantage. It may have bought time for Wessex in particular, while the Danes assimilated each Anglo-Saxon state. It was possible to pay some money and see the Danes move on elsewhere. In the 11th century, Æthelred sat at the head of the most organised, efficient and integrated state in Europe, and it availed him nothing. And Zwey knew that he had to defeat just one man, and all England would then be his. Most significantly, it came down to one leader, Æthelred. So everything he did and every decision he made affected the whole kingdom, and the decisions he made and the moral tone he set were sadly rubbish. So, in summary, he's still a bad king then. However, We haven't quite seen the back of Ethered, but rest assured it won't take a lot of time next week to polish him off. And we'll also hear about Svein's son, Canute, the first king of England, not to be descended from Churditch.
0: So, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.